Mirrors everywhere. Uh, I read a stat, the average person looks at themselves in the mirror eight times a day. Uh, I'm convinced that stat was like from 1930. Like, I feel like we look at ourselves in the mirror all the time. Um, how many of you, when you're backing out of the, your driveway or driving the car, how many of you look at yourself in your rearview mirror in your car? Um, the couple honest people, like I, I do. Uh, but we've got handheld mirrors, we've got countless reflections, pictures, FaceTime, Zoom. Uh, be honest with me now, for real. How many of you, when you're, when you're in a Zoom meeting, spend the entire time looking at yourself? Like, I'm the only one I look at. Everyone else in the Zoom meeting, I'm usually like, I don't want to look at that. So I'll look at me. But, but we look at ourselves in the, in the Zoom calls. And we can see, we have all of these opportunities to see, to see what we look like, to have an idea of what's good, what's bad, what's right, and what's wrong. And the older I get, the less and less I actually like the mirror. Like age is, is just starting to show. Uh, there are wrinkles where there used to not be wrinkles. Uh, there's dry skin used to just be something I read about. Now, like dry skin, every time it gets, uh, winter rolls around, I'm like, oh, my skin's going to get dry. I got, I've got like weird spots on my arm. I'm like, I'm not sure if I should be worried about that. Like is that skin cancer? Like everybody, does everybody have it? Like it's just part of getting old. I've always had big ears, uh, but now I've got hair growing out of my ears. And I look in the mirror, and like even this morning, I, I was looking in the mirror, and I'm like, I better make sure I pluck that one, because I'm going to be talking to people. And then every, every Sunday morning, I take the clippers, and I clip my eyebrows, too, because otherwise, they'll be like ridiculous. And what I've come to realize is I can grow hair on every square inch of my body except for my head. <laughs> like the one place I want hair is the only place I can't grow it. And I look in the mirror, and I'm reminded that, that I'm getting older the mirror tells me the truth. Uh, I've reached the, the age in life, some of you may connect with this, where it's really all about the lighting. So I'll find a mirror that if the lighting's good, I'm like, ooh, I like that mirror. And so that's where I'll always check and be like, okay, everything looks good because the lighting's good. But I look at the mirror, and the mirror tells me the truth. Tells me the truth about how I look, but it also reveals and exposes things about my appearance that are fixable. If you ever have lunch with a, with a friend and maybe you eat something with sesame seeds or cilantro or spinach and before you leave they, to go to engage the rest of the world, what do you do? You grab a mirror and you look in the mirror and you go, I want to make sure that, that everything's right. Like you look, is there, is there any broccoli in my teeth? You know, is, is there any, like did I spill anything on my shirt? Like we look at those things and we make adjustments. Before, uh, but before I leave a bathroom every single time without fail, I look in the mirror for two things. Number one, to make sure there's nothing hanging out of my nose. And then number two, to make sure my fly is up. Like, I want to make sure that, like, whatever meeting I'm going into, like, it's like, it's not that kind of party. So, like, no, like nobody, nobody needs to be that guy. Everybody's laughing. You think they're laughing with you, but they're laughing at you. And so, uh, if nothing else is right about me, I may have a big old spot of mustard on my shirt, but I can guarantee you my zipper is zipped and there's nothing hanging out of my nose. But we look in the mirror and it tells us the truth. It shows us what's wrong, and it shows us things that, that can be fixed. And James said that this book is like a mirror. This book is a mirror that we look into, and as we look into this book, if we're open to it and submitted and yielded to the Holy, the Holy Spirit living in us, not only do we read this book, but this book reads us. This book serve, serves as a mirror to show us what isn't right, to show us what isn't in step with the gospel, to show us what is between where we are and where we want to be, which is ultimately to become 
conform to the image of Jesus. And in James 1.22 through 24, he says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word, like if you read it, if you study it, if you're aware of it, but if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. Reading this book, growing in knowledge, but then not doing anything with the knowledge that we gain by studying this book is the same as looking at ourselves in the mirror, seeing something that is not right and walking away and just simply forgetting about it or choosing to do nothing about it. James says, don't just listen to what God has to say. Don't settle for awareness. Do what it says. And and that's the theme of the book of James. That's something that we're gonna come back to over and over and over again. In almost every passage that we read, we're gonna make the connection to the mirror. Like this passage is showing you something. It's telling you and I the truth about who we are. It's showing us something that isn't in step with the gospel, that isn't in alignment with what it should look like to be a follower of Jesus. It's going to show us something. And then we choose whether or not we're going to respond to it. But before we do that, before we start to really weave our way through this book starting next week, I want to stop and I want to talk a little bit about James because I think it's important to understand who the author is and what he's, the goal he's, he has and what he's written to us. And in James chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. So it's written by a man named James. James is the younger half-brother of Jesus. Something that's really interesting about James is James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In John 7, verse 5, it says even his own brothers didn't believe in him. And and there's a lot of questions about why didn't James believe. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll read the Gospels and I'll think in some encounters that Jesus had with people who didn't believe. Like, how could you experience what Jesus just did? How could you sit under Jesus' teaching and walk away and, and, not, and not believe? Well, James grew up with him. How could you literally spend every day and night for years and years and years with Jesus and still not believe? But for some reason, he didn't. And it's possible that maybe he had an image of what the Messiah would look like. And if you're anything like me, the Messiah was certainly not any of my siblings. So maybe he thought, well, there's no way he's my brother. Or, or maybe he thought the Messiah would arrive with a thunderous display of power and Jesus did, just didn't meet the expectation. Or it could have to do with something as simple as the fact that they were siblings and we do, we view our siblings differently. One of the best part about having siblings is we get to blame them for stuff, right? Like how many of you have multiple kids? How many, how many of us with multiple kids, there are things in our house that happen that nobody's responsible for? Like who left the garage door open last night? Nobody did it. But you imagine that house? Hey, who left the garage door open last night? And James is like, was it me? It must have been Jesus. And Mary's like, no. Probably wasn't Jesus. Who didn't do the dishes like I asked you guys to do? And they're like, Jesus. And Joseph's like, man, Jesus is many things, but I can promise you Jesus did his chores. So maybe there's some of that sibling tension or even being compared. There's no doubt that the younger brothers of Jesus were compared to Jesus. It's just what we do. I have an older sister. She's a one, uh, 20 months older than me, but one grade ahead of me. And growing up, she was always a good student. 
uh, got good grades, was respectful of the teachers, always popular, always got all the awards the teachers gave away. So she would leave, she would finish a grade, and I would come into the grade, and I would oftentimes have that same teacher, and they'd be like, oh, we're so excited, another Hamilton, until like Thanksgiving, and they were like, please tell us there are no more of you. (laughs) And I always got the, why can't you be more like your sister? But I mean, I I think for these guys, like the comparison, why can't you be more like Jesus? He respects his elders. He gets good grades. He never loses an argument. Like why, maybe the comparison was it. And we don't know why, but we just know that as an adult, James still did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But we also know that at some point that changed. In 1 Corinthians 15, five through seven, talking about Jesus making post-resurrection appearances, it says that he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Now, I, I, I don't want to read into this. I don't want to project something uh, on scripture that's not there. But doesn't it seem interesting that of all of the post-resurrection appearances that Jesus made, that it specifically mentions that he made one to his brother James. Don't you think Jesus cared about James not only as God of the universe, but also as a physical brother? That he took time of all of these appearances. Many of the times that he appeared to people, it was in groups. But one of the individual appearances, he shows up in the life of his brother and he says, James... All of, regardless of what you've experienced, regardless of what you've seen, I want you to believe. And we know that James at some point became a follower of Jesus. In fact, gave his life to advance the mission of his brother and became one of the pillars of the first century church in Jerusalem. And from there, from that, that seat of leadership is where he is writing this letter. And he's writing it to Jewish believers that were scattered abroad. He's in Jerusalem and he's writing to Jewish believers who've been dispersed outside of Palestine, largely due to persecution. And they're taking up residence in Gentile regions. And he's writing to them primarily for two things. Uh, Number one is to encourage them in their suffering. Uh, A lot of theologians and historians actually believe that that's the main point of James. Uh, I'm not saying I'm smarter than them, but he touches on suffering a little bit in the book. But the majority of what he talks about is actually how to live life as a follower of Jesus. And you've, you've got to keep in mind what was going on when, when he's writing this. The Jews are coming out from under, from under the weight of the law, from under the, the bondage of legalism that the Pharisees had placed on them. If you remember, we touched on this last week, Matthew 11, when Jesus says, all who are weary, come to me and I'll give you rest. And he says, take my yoke on you. He's inviting them away from the yoke of legalism and he's inviting them to join, to join him that with him there is, there is freedom. But the Jews came out from under a system where they had to obey 600 laws. And you would obey, from their perspective, we obey in order to be loved and favored by God, that, the, that your behavior was directly linked to your standing with God. I don't know about you, some of, some of you in this room, that's the background that you came from, that's the background I came out of. How, how, how I stood in the eyes of God was largely based on all the things I did or didn't do. And so for them, they'd come out from under that and you go, no, 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 like there's freedom. We're not under the law anymore, we're under grace. Well, that pendulum swings pretty heavily. I know in my life it did. All of a sudden I realized, oh man, my standing with God is is set. God loves me regardless. I don't obey to be loved. I already am. 
Like all of my sins are forgiven regardless of what I do. Jesus forgave all sins, past, present, and future. And that pendulum swings from legalism and it swings all the way over to license. Where you go, man, since Jesus already died, since Jesus already paid for my sins, I can do whatever I want. Like I want, I want him to get his money's worth. It's like, it's, like the, it's like the buffet mentality. If you go out to lunch with someone, you take me to lunch and you pay for, for my lunch at a buffet, I want you to get your money's worth. Like they're gonna have to roll me out of there. And that's what sometimes what we do with this is we go, man, Jesus paid for all of them. Well, then it doesn't matter how we live. And so James is writing to this group of Jews that had come from one system and then they moved into another. And he knows that the pendulum is swinging strongly in the favor of license. And he says, no, we've got to find the balance that this isn't how this works. His point throughout the book is very simple. His point throughout the book is that our behavior what we hear, what we understand, what we accept forms our belief, and our behavior should reflect our belief. And on the surface of the book of James, if, if you're not careful, at times it almost feels as if James is saying that works, the way we behave, is what saves us. Which is why the book has come under heavy scrutiny. It's arguably the most controversial book in the Bible. Martin Luther, in fact, called it the Epistle of Straw. He said it didn't even belong in the Bible because it lacked, uh, it lacked a true understanding of the gospel. But throughout history, a lot of leaders have questioned and even argued against its inclusion. There are a number of reasons. Number one is the lack of the use of the name of Jesus. You'll only see Jesus' name mentioned twice in the book of James. One is in verse one when he introduces himself. So really, in the, the totality of the book, he really only talks about Jesus once. Some people would argue that because of that, it doesn't belong. Now, what we're going to see, we're going to see even in a couple minutes, pretty much most of what James says, Jesus actually said. So he's just plagiarizing his brother. He just doesn't want to give his brother the credit. <laughs> so he's going to say, we're gonna, and we're going to look at a lot of where Jesus said it first. So Jesus' name may not be all over the book of James, but his influence is undeniable. And we're going to see that over the course of the next few months as we walk through this together. Some argue it doesn't belong because it lacks cohesion. I'll 100% agree with that. Like if you've read James, he's, he's kind of all over the map. Feels like 47 disconnected topics. It's like, it's like a ride in a car with an extroverted 13-year-old girl. Those of us that have them, you know what I'm talking about. 30 minutes in the car, we talk about 47 different things and I think none of them connect. And then if I ask the question, what does this have to do with that? Like all of a sudden it's tears. Like how do you not see how all of this connected? And that's what James is going to do. We're going to see that, that while these things, at times, things may stand alone, they're all a product of this overarching umbrella that the Bible is a mirror. It is telling us the truth about who we are, and then we choose whether or not we're going to respond to it. It's criticized because he appears to, contra because he appears to contradict the Apostle Paul. See, we say belief shapes behavior, and we start with belief, which is what Paul emphasized. Paul emphasized belief while James emphasized behavior. Paul focuses on belief, but Paul also talks about behavior, and he doesn't devalue behavior. Take a book like Ephesians, if you were here a few years ago when we walked through, through that book together. The first three chapters of Ephesians, we're not told to do anything. We're only told uh, who we are in Christ, and we're told essentially what to believe. So for the three chapters, he says, this is who you are, and this is what you believe. But if you don't read the first three chapters and all you read is four, five, and six, you'd go, man, it sounds a lot to me like Paul is saying, we got to work for our salvation. 
chapter four through six is in light of all of the things that we believe, this is how we live. And so he doesn't devalue the behavior. He just leads and elevates the belief. And James doesn't devalue the belief. He just places a point of emphasis on the reality that if what we say we believe is true, if we truly believe it, then it's going to change the way we live. It's going to affect our behavior. See, belief and behavior, it's like, it's like pedals on a bike. Belief propels us forward. Behavior, as we, as we put into effect what we learn, behavior propels us forward, which strengthens our belief. The more my belief is strengthened, the more there are things that aren't in step with the gospel are revealed. The more I respond to them, the more it's revealed. And that's what propels us forward. And so Paul and James are giving us two sides of the, of the same coin. And James is making the point plainly throughout his book that how we live matters. And he gives us the mirror to assess if our lives truly line up with what we believe. We look into the mirror and then we choose to do with it what it shows, what it shows and what it reveals. So James says, as the mirror reveals things, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word as well. I said a minute ago that one of the criticisms of James is that Jesus' name isn't mentioned often, but his influence is through there. James isn't the first person to say this. Jesus said it. In Matthew 7, 24, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, anyone who listens to my teaching and what? And follows it is wise. He didn't say anyone who listens is wise. He said anyone who listens and follows it, who doesn't just hear it, but does what it says, is wise like a person who builds his house in a solid rock. Jesus wants us to not just be hearers of his word, he wants us to follow them. And neither Jesus nor James devalue the importance of hearing, because hearing leads to understanding, understanding that we accept forms our belief, and then our belief ultimately shapes our behavior. So reading this book is important. Studying this book is important. Sitting under the teaching of this word is important. Meditating on it, journaling it. All of it is critical to forming our belief about it, but hearing is not the same as doing. And I think in North American Christianity, we have accepted learning, we've accepted knowledge acquisition as the goal. It's like, it's like we're auditing a class. You can do this in a, a, probably any college around here. If you want to audit a class, you sign up for the class. You pay a small fee, not the full fee of the, of the tuition. You say it's a small auditor fee. You sit through the lectures. But beyond that, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to take notes. You don't have to take the test. You are sitting there for no reason other than to sit under the teaching, than to gain the knowledge and the information of the person that is teaching the class. And I think that sums up where many of us as, as North American Christians have come to and where we're comfortable. We're okay to just learn. We accept knowledge. We chase knowledge. We sit and we soak in the knowledge, convincing ourselves that knowledge is enough. That being the Bible answer man or having a verse to give to everyone else in every situation they find themselves in is the goal. And we sit under the teaching of the word and we think, I sure hope my husband or my wife is listening. 
Man, does my community group leader need to hear this. Some of the most knowledgeable people I know, biblically knowledgeable people I know, some of the most judgmental and self-righteous people I know, some of the most unloving and unaccepting, some of the least generous people I know, they have all of the knowledge. They have a Bible verse for every situation. They have the answer to everything that may come up in your life. But it's never translated into the heart and it's never moved out into the way that they live. Would we agree that Jesus was a pretty knowledgeable guy? Probably the most knowledgeable person that ever lived. Would we agree that Jesus was righteous? That he was holy? So the smartest guy in the room, the most knowledgeable and the most holy, also happened to be the least self-righteous, the least judgmental, the most loving and accepting. See, see, see we've come to a place where we're okay with just knowing more. And in fact, that, 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 that's all we crave. Like, I want to I know more. I want to grow my knowledge. I want to go deeper in the word. One of the things I ask someone when they ever say to me, I want to go deeper in the word, the first thing I ask is why? Like, if, if that's you today, why do you want to go deeper in the word? Why do you want to know more? Is it because I want to, I want to be smarter? Because I want to be able to, to, to teach other people? Or is it because I want to come to a better understanding of who he is and who I am in Christ and ultimately how that's going to reshape the way I live my life? Spoiler alert, no one's ever said that to me. No one's ever been like, I want to learn more because I want to be more like Jesus. We've settled for chasing knowledge. And knowledge without application is meaningless. My goal has never been and never will be simply to, to teach us. My goal is to teach us how to live. That's why we go through books of the Bible. I love doing this, but the goal is not, is, is not for you to be able to say, oh, I fully understand all of the things that James was talking about in his book. The goal is for you to go, man, I understand the things that James was talking about in his book, and it is kicking my butt. And it is completely reshaping what I believe, and it's ultimately reshaping the way I live. Like, like man, it's, it's changing the way I live as a husband. It's changing the way I live as a wife. It's changing the way I parent my kids. It's changing the way I, I, I function on the, uh, on, on the PTA. It's changing the way I treat my neighbors. That it's reshaping every area of my life. That, that, that's the goal. That's what I want us to, to, to understand and, and grasp, not only in the book of James, but in everything that we walk through. The goal isn't simply to teach us, it's to teach us how to live. It's not knowledge, it's knowledge applied. And he says in verse 25, he says, but if you look carefully into the perfect law, the perfect law is the, the word of truth, the, the words of Jesus. If you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it says, if we submit to the process, yielding to the Holy Spirit, surrendering control of our lives to him, living in joyful submission under the lordship of King Jesus as he reveals, as he exposes things about me, as he reveals and exposes things about you, 
that we let him reveal what is not in step with the gospel and that we let him lead us into taking the steps of living more like Jesus. He says, if you look into this, if you listen to it, if you respond, God will bless you. Now, bless is a, is, a, is a very broad word. I don't know exactly what it means, but I do know this. It means good. I don't know anyone in here who goes, I don't want to be blessed today. Like, like we're like down for the blessings. It says, if we do that, we'll be blessed. Maybe it's as simple as doing the things that Jesus has modeled and called us to do. Maybe it's something as simple as I just experience more peace every day than I did before. Like, like, like maybe it brings more harmony into our marriages. Maybe, maybe, maybe it breaks down the, 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 the relational conflict that we're walking through. I don't know what it is. I just know that we're told that we're going to be blessed. And seven times in the book of James, you're going to see the word perfect. Oftentimes he talks about do this and, and, and you'll, be, you'll be perfect. Uh, perfect means to, to be, for something to be completely integrated. For us, it means to live a completely integrated life. An integrated life is one that is unified within at all levels and with lo- little to no discrepancy between the present self and the desired self. Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about becoming like Jesus and we had the picture of the, the guy from Goonies and then the picture of Jesus and it's like more often than not, like I'm, I'm much more like this guy than this guy. Living an integrated life, the perfect life, the process of becoming more like Jesus is where the gap is closed between where we are and where we want to be, where we are and ultimately where, where God is taking us. It's closing, it's closing the gap. An integrated life means that our actions are always consistent with the values and beliefs that we've received from Jesus. When I talk about having gaps, gaps between what I believe and how I actually live, how many of us would say we're there? Like how many of us would say like, no, there's no gaps between what I believe and how I live? No, all of us would say like we're fractured with inconsistency. That, 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 that what I believe as a husband isn't always how I live and function and behave towards my wife. That, that, that what I believe as a, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple maker, that what I believe doesn't always seem to reflect itself in the way I treat the people who don't believe and value the things that I believe and value. Like, like we're, we're fractured with, with inconsistencies. And allowing this book to serve as a mirror, that, that, that we look into it and, and that as we read this book, this book reads us, you've heard me say this before, but reading the Bible is like looking through a keyhole and seeing a set of eyes looking back at you. And as I read it, as I surrender control of my life to the Spirit, as I allow Him to, to reveal things to me, He's showing me things that are inconsistent in my life. And, 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 and man, as he showed me things that are inconsistent in my life, I want to be in a place where, where I go, Holy Spirit, I don't want to just see that. I don't want to just see what you're showing me about the way I treat Jennifer, the way I treat my kids. I don't want, just, I don't want to just see it. I want to fix it. I want my life to be different because of what it is that you're showing me. 
And you and I have to take personal responsibility for our walk with Jesus because the only one who can make you a doer of the word and not just to hear, the only one who can do that is you. The only one who can do that for me is me. And so I want to give you, I want to share with you something uh, that, that I do. I want to give you something today that, that, I, that I think can, can be a huge help. It's part of what I do is part of a DNA group that I'm a, that I'm a part of here with a couple of guys from, from Generation. But what I want to challenge you to do is over the course of this series, just start with the book of James. Would you commit to take one chapter a week? What I want you to do is I want you to read chapter one. I want you to read it once or twice. And I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to read it. And then ask the Holy Spirit, what, what do you want me to see? What do you want to show me? And then as you do that, I want to share with you what we do in our DNA. It's called, it's called the here acrostic. You, you may have seen it before. We may have even talked about it here before. The DNA group that I'm with, we meet every other week. We, we meet tonight. We're walking through the book of Romans. We're finishing up Romans tonight. But this is what we do. We read through the passage multiple times, just simply asking the Spirit, like, like, show me what you want me to see. And then after we've read it a couple of times and, and we've asked him to reveal us to stuff, it's amazing he starts to, to shine a light on things that we hadn't seen before. Um, I, I uh, wrote for Romans chapter 15, uh, I journaled in about Romans 15 about a week ago. And then I was getting ready for uh, tonight yesterday, I was going back through and I'd actually forgotten that I had journaled Romans 15. And so I'm going through this process all over again. And I ended up journaling the exact same verse that I journaled a week ago. Like, don't you think the Holy Spirit's trying to tell me something? I'm not going to tell you guys what it is. <laughs> don't you think he's showing me something? I'd forgotten about the one, did it a week later, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the exact same verse. It's the exact same message. The Holy Spirit clearly is trying to shine a light on something in my life. But so as we, as we read it, as we pray, here's a four-step really simple process. Number one for the H is highlight. What is a verse or a phrase, maybe multiple verses that stood out to you from your reading? Underline it. Highlight the verse, write the reference somewhere. Might even be helpful, like get an index card and actually write the verse out. Some people like to do that because it helps commit it to memory. And then as you figure out that section, that verse that you know God is like, is, is, is uh, pressing into your life about, second thing you want to do is the E, which is explain. What does the, the verse or phrase mean in the context of the passage? Context is really, really important. Without context, we're going to wind up with some jacked up beliefs. I'll give you a couple of verses if you don't have context. Amos 4.4, 4, go ahead and offer sacrifices to the idols at Bethel. That's God speaking. You think God's like, yeah, go ahead, just offer some idols. You think he means that? You go, I probably should figure out what he's saying around it because there's obviously something he's driving at here because God never condoned the worship of idols. Or Ecclesiastes 10.19 Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. How many of you are like, I just found my life first? <laughs> money is the answer to everything. Solomon said it, the wisest man, uh, the wisest man who ever lived must be true. So if you don't get the context of that verse, you're gonna get yourself into some trouble. 
James is another example. You got to be careful going through James because if you just pick a verse out, you're going to wind up with a theology that isn't, isn't in alignment with Scripture. You're going to wind up with some beliefs, things like, oh man, works must save us. So get the context. Some things I like to do that I would recommend. Number one, there's an app. It's literally called the Bible app. Download the Bible app. There's all kinds of resources that you can find with Bible studies, also with whatever chapter you're looking at, whatever verse. It'll give you a bunch of notes. Uh, I actually have right here, I have a couple of these. It's called the, uh, the Filament Bible. And it's got like, you're not even going to be able to see this, but whatever. Um, I can see it just fine. Um, it's got these little like uh, things that you scan and when you scan it, it takes you to the app on your phone and it takes you to that chapter and it has maps, it has videos, it has blogs, it has all kinds of things that can teach you and help you understand um, what it is that, that you read and what the, what the context and, and uh, the, the culture of the, the day was. Concordances, Bible dictionaries are helpful. Also, Parallel Bible, this is something I love. I've got a Bible in my office. It's got four translations side by side, so every passage I read, I'm able to read it and see what it says in four different translations. Another thing I like to do is I like to identify keywords. Like, what's a word you see over and over again? Perfect is seven times in James. So I said, okay, I need to figure out what perfect means because I don't think it just means what, what we think it means. I think there's something deeper there. He's driving at something. So you highlight, you explain, like you understand the, the, the context, and then where it starts to get really personal is then you apply. How can I apply this to my life? This application could be belief or behavior that the Holy Spirit shows you that you need to change or shift. Listen, at the application point, this is, this is very personal. This is not about what your husband or wife or your neighbor needs to read. This is not about what you wish the president was reading. This is about you. This is about me. When, when, when this book examines me, if my response is to think about you, then there's something broken in me. This is all about me. This is, this is very personal. It's asking questions like, God, what are you speaking to me into this passage? God, how can I apply what you've shown me? How does that apply in real life? And as he speaks, you, you write it down. And then the last thing you do is you respond. I start out with the response by, by simply just writing out a prayer. Like, based on what I've read in the application, I've found this is what it's going to look like in my life. Give me the strength to do what I don't have the strength to do. And then the last thing I do and respond is, I, just, I simply call it a, just a call to action. Some of you in your jobs, you have this. But it's something that I'm going to do because of what the passage is taught. Like decide how my life is going to be different because of what's been, because of what's been revealed. I think if you'll, if you'll do that, it starts to take the Bible from just something we read in a box that we check to something that truly shows and reveals something to us and has the power in our lives when we allow it to, the power to reshape the way we live. It has the power to change us. But as we walk through James in life, just remember this is a mirror. It's telling you the truth. 
may not like what I see. I may not like what it says. But it doesn't lie. It's telling me the truth. It's telling you the truth. But it only benefits us if we respond to what it reveals. If we don't respond to what it reveals, it's the same as looking at yourself in the mirror, seeing something that is wrong and something that is fixable and walking away and doing nothing about it. So Holy Spirit, now as we start this journey, James, somebody I look forward to meeting when I get to heaven. I just want to, what a great letter. And as we move through it, there are going to be some weeks that we like. But full disclosure, spoiler alert, there's going to be a lot more weeks that we don't. But would you use your word to show us what is an in step with the gospel? Show us what it looks like to become more like Jesus. Jesus, it's in your name. It's for your, for your glory. We praise you.